How Black Voters Choose Candidates, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Black voters saved Joe Biden in the 2020 Democratic primary, shunning some black and other white candidates. They are the firm base of the Democratic coalition, despite a diversity of backgrounds and opinions. But some have shown signs of openness to Donald Trump. How do black voters select candidates, and when and why do they prioritize descriptive representation? This week, I talked to Julian Womble of George Washington University about his research and book manuscript, We Choose You. He finds that black voters seek strong signals that politicians will prioritize the group's interest over their personal interest, particularly from historic sacrifice. We discuss his research on how candidates can demonstrate social ties, political connection, and personal sacrifice to black voters, and whether those strategies trade off with candidate appeals to white voters. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So your uh, dissertation and um, uh, book manuscript uh, look at vote choice among black voters. Uh, So tell us what the traditional explanations for vote choice are among black voters and what they leave out. Generally, when we look at how individuals kind of talk about black voting behavior, particularly in terms of candidate selection, there tends to be a kind of consensus, particularly in the kind of Jesse Jackson era and in the Obama era, of if you are Black and a Democrat, Black voters are going to support you. Um, and while there is you know, validity to that, to the extent that we've seen kind of high numbers, both for Jesse Jackson and for Obama, um, what I think is missing is the fact that there are a lot of other Black politicians who have run who have not been able to garner that level of success. And that tells us a story about something else happening underneath the hood. Um, And my argument is that in a lot of ways, Black voters are looking for more than just a kind of sign that a politician looks like them um, and are looking for what I call kind of commitment or community commitment, some sort of indication that you are someone who is willing to kind of prioritize the group's interest above your own kind of personal interest or political interest, um, because Black voters have a very specific political experience that leads them to be extremely skeptical and very um, shrewd about those individuals who they allow to support them or um, who they allow to represent them. And so um, I think that that level of nuance is what's missed in these kind of very phenotypic-based explanations. So yeah, you emphasize this community commitment um, and how it can be signaled in campaign messages. Um, so give us um, a few more uh, explicit examples, and maybe um, you, you talked about um, well-known, very well-known candidates, but maybe uh, you can give us uh, some in the in the other categories of, of are there any non-black candidates that can signal that commitment, and who are the black candidates who haven't been able to signal that commitment? So I think that in a lot of cases, um, I think of people who have done it very effectively um, are politicians who are a bit older. So I think of the late John Lewis, who, you know, was very um, intentional about his invoking his involvement in the civil rights movement as a way to kind of show that commitment. Um, And he often used it as a way to connect other politicians who may or may not have that history to his own narrative. So we saw him do this, or we saw John Ossoff do this a lot, kind of connecting their, bridging their narratives together. Um, We saw um, Cori Bush, um, a congresswoman out of um, Missouri, um, talk about her time as a um, organizer 
in St. Louis. Uh, we see um, Steve Cohen, who is a white congressman out of Tennessee, who in 2007 ran against um, the former mayor of Memphis, W.W. Harrington, and a number of other very viable, well-known Black candidates. And while he couldn't talk about sacrifices that he's made, he did talk about his connections to other Black people in the establishment of the Memphis area. Uh, we saw Bill de Blasio um, do this when he ran uh, for mayor of New York City. Um, he talked a lot about his connections to his wife when he ran for president, actually. He um, talked about his son, Dante, who is a Black man, um, and talked a lot about and said on the stage of the debate, I'm the only one up here who has a Black son. Uh, we saw Cory Booker on that same debate stage, actually, talk about um, the fact that he was the only one on that stage who was living in the projects um, or living in kind of subsidized housing um, in Newark at the time. And so we see kind of invocations of community commitment, which I argue is this, um, again, this desire of prioritizing or this commitment to prioritizing the group's interest, political interest, social interest, above one's own kind of personal prestige. And so in these instances, what we see is politicians taking um, their own connections to the Black community, um, in the case of Bill de Blasio, um, in the case of um, Steve Cohen, and highlighting these connections as a way to, I argue, show a level of accountability to the racial group. Um, and there's an amazing quote that was done in an article about Bill de Blasio um, when a, a gentleman said, every morning he has to wake up to his wife, who is a Black woman, and if she says my people are hurting, he can't ignore that. And I think that that kind of highlights this connection that Bill de Blasio was able to kind of communicate to Black voters about not only his connection to the racial group, um, but a very intimate connection that suggested that he would be accountable to the group and prioritize the interests of the group. Um, I think Cori Bush talks very kind of candidly about her own experiences with police brutality and the sacrifices that she has made. And we've seen her while she's been in office um, organize. Um, I think they did a, it wasn't a sit-in because they were outside, but they uh, were outside um, protesting for on behalf of people who were unhoused. And she talked about her own experiences as being unhoused and how, you know, that, you know, disproportionately affects communities of color. And so we see these examples of individuals who have done it effectively. Uh, when we think about those who have not, um, I think about more often than not, people who have not effectively done community, community commitment signaling are individuals who have not done signaling at all. Um, and so I think of um, Anthony Brown in 2014 when he ran for governor of Maryland, um, and then simultaneously Benjamin Jealous, um, who ran for the governor of Maryland in 2018, both of whom ran very different kinds of campaigns. And so, you know, um, Anthony Brown was coming off the heels of Obama and was kind of running a more deracialized campaign um, with the belief that he could kind of mimic what Obama had done. We saw a very similar thing in 2010 with um, Arthur Davis, who was running for governor of Alabama. Um, and he also ran a race that very rarely did he invoke race. And, and in a moment, 
where he um, was kind of called upon by the kind of black power structure in Alabama. Um, he kind of shunned them in ways that led to him kind of being seen as someone who was trying to work outside of the black community um, and also kind of voted against um, the Affordable Care Act, which was seen as kind of something that was standing in the face of black individuals and was cast that way by the kind of well-known black politicians in the state. Um, Anthony Brown ran again a very kind of deracialized campaign where he didn't really talk about race that often until the very end when it became very clear that he was not getting the level of black support that they thought he would given the historic nature of his campaign because he would have been the first black politician um, the first black governor of Maryland um, and in a poll that was done by the Washington Post and University of Maryland at the time when asked what they thought um, either Anthony Brown or Larry Hogan, his white Republican opponent, would have done for Black people and whether or not one of them would be more beneficial. Black voters, 60% of Black voters in that sample said it wouldn't make a difference. And so that's a very strong indication of kind of Brown's failure to communicate any level of commitment when his white Republican counterpart, which the literature and, you know, many anecdotes would suggest should have absolutely no appeal. Um, he and they were tied in terms of the belief of what they would do for the Black community. And so those are just a few examples of individuals who have either not shown any commitment to the group or um, not done it well. So some of your uh, previous work uh, looks at uh, uh, Black attachment to the Democratic uh, Party as uh, governed by social solidarity and sort of compliance um uh within the black community um that this is this is our side um and your co-authors um who've been on before have talked about uh this have articulated this this theory um in their book steadfast democrats which may sound similar um uh, to some of your theories so give us um kind of what what you share with that approach and where your approach differs so i think what we share is that we're all talking about this idea of a kind of socialized understanding of accountability that operates outside of the space of um, kind of a more formalized political understanding of accountability, which is generally kind of characterized as if you don't do what we want you to do, we would just won't vote for you. And I think what um, I, uh, what Ishmael White and Cheryl Laird also kind of talk about and, and what I kind of build off from them is this idea that Black people have kind of a socialized understanding of accountability that is very much based off of um, the use of social sanctions as a way to keep individuals in the more social space from choosing their own personal interest over that of group interest. And what I do um, in my own work is build off of that and make an argument that that same kind of expectation that is kind of grounded in a social space is this, is then used and augmented um, for individuals seeking to represent Black people. And I argue that that's the case because as, um, Ishmael and Cheryl show us, it's very effective. Um, and to that end, Black voters are much more interested in what they know works than structures that have been proven 
as far as they're concerned, to not be as effective to get the things that they want um, out of those individuals who are at least seeking their support in some way. And so I argue that that same level of accountability is something that they are then looking for from individuals who are politicians and elites and that that is something that they are also using to hold them accountable as well, even within a more formalized political structure. So another difference um, seems to be uh, their emphasis on uh, group interactions kind of outside of the candidate um, in churches and in other predominantly Black uh, spaces, um, where some of your emphasis is more on kind of what's under the candidate's control in terms of ads and their debate messages and their speeches. So, so how do those, those things interact? Can you get kind of the w- word of mouth um, uh, compliance without the candidate messaging? Can you get the candidate messaging that doesn't translate uh, into, um, you know, the, the word of mouth that's necessary to, to kind of generate uh, that adherence? I think you definitely, oh, I think politicians definitely benefit if you are able to get both, right? I think if you can have a campaign ad or a message that resonates in a way that gets Black people talking in very kind of um, public spaces, I think I'm thinking particularly of um, the race between Herschel Walker and um, Senator Raphael Warnock and what... Warnock was able to do very effectively, partially because of, you know, his own connections to the Black church as an institution in and of itself, is that he was able to kind of use those networks um, within his own kind of ads, but also to use those networks to get people talking about him. Um, And I think... uh, a pastor, a very prominent Black pastor in Atlanta, Jamal Bryant, kind of gave a whole sermon that wasn't necessarily in favor of Raphael Warnock, but was definitely kind of a derision of um, Herschel Walker. And so I think that there are ways in which the kind of social networks that Black people tend to occupy are what Black politicians or politicians seeking their support um, regardless of their race, they want to be part of those conversations. Um, And so I think that that's why we see, you know, instances of politicians like, you know, um, Vice President Harris going uh, during the campaign and going on to like prominent Black radio stations. Um, uh, President Biden did the exact same thing. We see them kind of utilizing these social spaces in the same way that they would other kind of spaces um, that are more political in nature because they kind of want those conversations of the political and the social to converge in very meaningful ways. And so I think um, while my work is very focused on the kind of campaign messages, I think what we see is that, you know, it's no mistake that during a Democratic primary, um, politicians are going down to South Carolina and going to a Black church. Right. And they're making themselves known and they're making their kind of political pitches in these seemingly, I mean, for the black community, the black church is an extremely political space. Um, but we see them like outside of formalized political spaces, making the same kinds of appeals and using this and sending the same kinds of signals um, that they would if they were doing it in a campaign ad. And so I think there's a recognition of 
one's desire to appeal to Black voters means that you kind of have to blend together the social and the political in order to do it effectively. So part of your evidence uh, is from survey experiments where you try to distinguish between um, how candidates could signal uh, their affiliation via social ties, via political connections, or via personal sacrifice. Um, so tell us kind of mechanically how you're able to distinguish um, between those messages uh, and what you find. Sure. So I make an argument that, you know, I focus on two different kinds of signals. So the first one is a personal sacrifice signal. Uh, I draw a lot on signaling theory in which there are signalers, which are politicians, and then there are receivers, which are Black voters. And then there are signals that are used as a way to kind of communicate an underlying um to communicate underlying information. And so in signaling theory, they often use the case of if you apply for a job and you may not be able to kind of inherently communicate your ability to do the job's kind of requirements, but that your education provides some evidence and some underlying unspoken information about your ability to do the job. And in that same way, I argue that the signals used by politicians are meant to communicate some level of commitment, which is the expectation that Black voters have of those individuals seeking to represent them. And so I argue that there's personal sacrifice, which is one where politicians are invoking something that they've already done that has put their kind of well-being in jeopardy. So I operationalize that in two different ways. So the first one is a kind of financial sacrifice where a politician has given up their um, financial well-being in some regard to help the group. So I draw on examples from Cory Booker, again, who talks about, you know, living in the projects of Newark, despite the fact that he was making enough money as a senator to be able to live elsewhere. I also think about um, Obama, who, you know, part of his lore was, you know, making $10,000 a year and driving a car that had a hole in it um, while he was a community organizer, um, despite the fact that he had the degrees and the pedigree to be able to be working um, and a much more high paying job. And so in that, I kind of argue that, or I kind of put forth in the experimental design a, um, a claim that the candidate has given up their job at a prominent law firm as a way to, um, to work with civil rights organizations to help black individuals. Um, and this is kind of, again, showing us two things one, that this is something that they've already done for the group and that they're having a willingness to sacrifice something that is meaningful, like, you know, their financial well-being for the group. Um, and then another way that I operationalize this is by focusing on what I call physical sacrifice, which looks very similar to the sacrifices of the civil rights movement or even the Black Lives Matter movement, um, where we see a politician talking about the fact that they have um, you know, protested and been hit by rubber bullets and tear gas um, in an attempt to bring more equity to the Black community. And this one is one that, you know, one of the tenets of signaling theory is this perception of cost. And this one is what I would argue is the more costly one, because while financial sacrifice is meaningful in a lot of ways, physical sacrifice is extremely meaningful and resonates a lot with Black voters, many of whom recognize the civil rights movement and the sacrifices of those individuals who were part of that movement as being integral to their 
inclusion into political spaces by way of voting. Um, and so in the in both of these kind of signaling, these kind of personal sacrifice signals, we see an invocation of the past to show something, to show what I call a realized commitment. So this is to say that if the underlying information is commitment, both of these signals signal, both of these signals convey an idea that the politician has already done the thing. They've already met the expectation of Black voters in terms of proving their willingness to put the group's interest above their own. And they're doing it in such costly ways that I argue that this is a very effective way to show this commitment. But everyone can't do that um, for one reason or another. And so I argue that there are these social connection signals wherein individuals connect themselves to institutions, individuals, or symbols that are meaningful and important to the Black community, and that these signals communicate two different things. One is um, a potential commitment, right? So there's no invocation of what they've already done for the group. Um, they have, they, they, they're not communicating that. But what they can do is show that they are willing and potentially are likely to place the interest of the group first above their own prestige. But what's also important about that, right, is again, kind of connecting the work back to Steadfast Democrats, is that Black people want to know that you can be held accountable. They want to know that if you deviate from a promise that you've made about prioritizing the group's interests, that they can hold you accountable in some way. And so these social connection treatments, or the, yeah, the social connection treatments and the social connection um, signals are ones where not only are you invoking a potential commitment, but you're also communicating a, a an ability to be held accountable to the group. And so I operationalize that by the invocation of one's family. Um, so I kind of draw on Bill de Blasio um, and Obama, who both of whom relied a lot on their families, um, both of whom, you know, have Black American wives, um, to talk about their experiences and connect their own experiences to that of their Black families as a way to show not only accountability, but an, a potential, a greater potential to prioritize the group's interests because they have a vested interest in it. And then also um, a more traditional kind of political way of doing it by connecting oneself to prominent institutions by way of being endorsed by institutions like the NAACP, um, which also communicates this sense of, you know, I'm connected to this organization that has worked on behalf of the group for a very long time. Simultaneously, if I don't do what I'm promising, I will lose that endorsement. And so then you're, there's an invocation of costs there as well. So some of the um, most seemingly effective uh, messages um, invoke these personal sacrifices, um, but they are similar to um, less racialized messages that politicians have relied on for a long time, um, talking about the, their, uh, the, the lowest class background that they can muster, even if it's from their grandparents, um, or um that i things that they have done um that that they you know have given up um uh, wealth or esteem to do something on behalf of the community so kind of differentiate the the racialized group message that you um have in mind from kind of that that history and you know to what extent are these just popular messages um that would appeal to all voters um versus are um specifically targeted uh, toward black Americans? 
Sure. I think everyone wants to know, no matter kind of where you are on life's journey, everyone wants to know that you are willing to kind of prioritize their interest. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are a lot of work in leadership studies that talks about people who like politicians who self-sacrifice. Um, I think what sets Black people apart is the connection between self-sacrifice and political efficacy. Um, there's a historical narrative that is derived both from the Reconstruction era, uh, where Black politicians or Black individuals who were chosen by their community to represent them in state houses, in Congress during the Reconstruction era, were, you know, having to navigate staying alive long enough to do these things. Um, and even in Black voters themselves who were trying and working hard to navigate a political space, particularly in the South, that while legally was kind of accessible to them, socially, individuals were working very hard to deny them that access. And so there was a lot of sacrifice that went into simply engaging in politics. And we saw this, uh, we see this again, you know, from Reconstruction all the way through to the end of the kind of modern civil rights movement. And so I think what's specific about what Black voters are looking for is they want it to be specific to them. Because I think when we think about this particular kind of political racial group, we're talking about a group of people whose political power has always been recognized, but has, all, but has also been pandered to in ways that have led to them supporting individuals who have in no way kind of made the, or who have no way fulfilled the promises that they have made. And so Black voters want a sure thing in a way that I think, and and the way that they go about securing that sure thing, and by sure thing, I mean, they want to know that when you say that you're going to do something or you say that you're committed, that it's actually true. And so the way that they go about ensuring that is by looking for very specific kinds of sacrifice. So especially because the kind of sacrifice that they're looking for is sacrifice that they have either seen or heard or experienced that has led to very specific political outcomes for them. And so while, yes, every... I would argue that most people want someone who is willing to kind of make these sacrifices. Black people have a very specific socio-historical understanding of what those sacrifices look like and what they can do in a way that I think is potentially different for a lot of other kind of racial and political identity groups um, that Black people want a very specific, or they want a level of specificity and if they don't get it, you won't get that support. And I think I think a lot of um, like Bernie Sanders, who you know was active in the civil rights movement um, and talked a lot about it, but because he is a white man, um, and that's not a narrative that Black people tend to hear. What ended up happening is even though he invoked his involvement in the civil rights movement, many Black people did not believe him, and so they had to. People literally went and combed archives to find pictures of him to prove his involvement. And even then, 
when asked about this, the late John Lewis said, oh, I didn't see him there. And that completely undermined Bernie Sanders' claim to the sacrifices that he made. And so, again, we're dealing with a very kind of shrewd population of people who want unequivocal evidence of the fact that you are going to or have placed the group's interest above your own prestige. And that evidence has to be rock solid. And so other sacrifices that you've made for other groups is not going to resonate the same way because there's such a high level of skepticism and and distrust within the Black community that I think um, is warranted given the history of, of like Black political engagement. And um, and so I think that that's what sets them apart from other groups who may um, still want something that looks similar to community commitment, but the historical grounding of the expectations that Black people have, and as a result of that grounding, what it is that they expect to see is something that I think is what sets them apart from other people. So if Black voters uh, want uh, this uh, group-specific commitment and prioritization, um, that raises the possibility that there'll be a trade-off when presenting that message uh, to white voters or other uh, non-Black voters, and certainly uh, Black candidates uh, and uh, consultants advising Black candidates have often uh, seen that as uh, a a potential uh, trade-off that justifies trying to de-racialize um, these these campaigns. So to what extent is that um, trade-off uh, real, that the messages uh, that appeal most to Black voters uh, will uh, at least not help them with white voters, if not actually turn them off? And, and how have uh, candidates uh, successfully towed that line? I think it's absolutely real. And I think that this is something that Black voters are aware of. In my data I, that from my dissertation, I asked my respondents, you know, based on what you've seen, how likely do you think this candidate is to get support from white voters? And what I find is that Black voters, you know, personal sacrifice is the most effective um, at getting strong support from Black voters. But it is also the treatment where, particularly the physical sacrifice, the costliest, where Black voters recognize that white individuals are going to be less likely to support that candidate. So there's a very clear understanding on the part of Black politi- of Black voters and on black, of Black politicians. Um, and, and so I think, you know, towing that line is very specific. I think that the way that we see many do this is invoking, and, and I should preface this by saying that I my goal in my next kind of iteration of work is to kind of dive into this more specifically and really think about how do you tow that line? Um, And so what I think we see is the invocation of um, kind of these social connections more than we would see personal sacrifice. And I think that we we see an invocation of connections that are very Black specific, but don't always resonate with white voters in the same way. So it's kind of like uh, a like a secret knock on a door, if you will, um, where, you know, so the invocation of 
a, a church that one goes to, um, you know, individuals who have gone to historically black colleges or universities often talk about this um, in very kind of explicit terms, but that may not resonate or signal the same thing to white voters as it would to black voters. Um, institutions like, you know, a fraternity or sorority that is kind of um, historically understood within the black community. Uh, we saw this, uh, you know, Kamala Harris did this very often, right? She talked about her time at Howard. Um, she talked about her time growing up in Oakland. She spent a lot of time talking about the fact that she is a member of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. And so that these are things that, um, carry meaning within the Black community, and also communicate, I would argue, some level of connection to the group in meaningful ways, um, but don't necessarily have the same level of potential of isolating white voters. Um, and so I think that that's the way that the line is towed. Now, I that's theoretical. I have yet to, I don't have any data to tell me whether or not it's actually effective. Um, just stand by. Um, I'm working on it. Um, but I do think that there is something about like the more subtle signals that Black people or that are cues that Black people can pick up on and kind of derive some meaning from um, that won't necessarily feed into the existing stereotypes that scholarship tells us that white people have about, about Black politicians. Um, and I think that that's really what is trying to be avoided. But I also wonder in this like very highly polarized time that we find ourselves in in terms of partisanship about the efficacy about the necessity of doing that now if we think about the 2020 democratic primary i've never seen such a racialized such racialized appeals being made i mean we were talking about reparations which is kind of aggressive um and it was part of almost every candidate's main campaign, right? Like this wasn't just kind of targeted to black voters. They were talking about this broadly. And and it might've been because we were coming out of a moment of high amounts of racial unrest. But simultaneously, we saw both white and black politicians kind of being very race forward, um, particularly black forward in their conversations about what it is that they were going to do. And I think, and so this leads to kind of other questions about whether or not there's been a shift amongst, in particular, white Democrats. You know, there's the work from um, Yana Krupnikov and Spencer Piston that tells us that, you know, for Obama, he lost white support because of his race. And there are questions about, you know, whether or not that is still the case in a time where we where it is so explicitly racial um and whether or not white democrats and white liberals are more willing and more res positively responsive to um some of these signals that may have historically been seen as kind of ostracizing or isolating and so those are questions that that i have because i think you know, this last Democratic primary. And I think even in Biden's administration right now, we're seeing outrageously explicit racial rhetoric in ways that we've not seen, at least in my lifetime, um, in to the degree that we're seeing it now. And so there are questions about whether or not, you know, 
Black politicians have to toe that line or have to be deracialized. And there is a book um, by Christopher Stout that talks about the the kind of growing lack of necessity to deracialize one's campaigns. Um, And so I think that what we may be seeing in this contemporary moment is a movement away from that. But I do think that that doesn't mean that, you know, there can be such a strong reliance on the strongest signals. I do think that those things can still be very isolating. And so there has to be, there still has to be a balance. It just may not be deracialized or go full tilt. It can be something that kind of sits in the middle. Um, And it's just not clear to me as of yet what that middle ground looks like. So Black voters are um, not only considering how they'll react to the messages, but um, strategically considering how other voter groups are responding to the same messages. So it sounds like um, that this might uh, be different considerations in primaries versus uh, general elections um, and might also change with the electorate. So um, just in primary terms, um, you know, when Jesse Jackson was running for president, he could be assumed to sort of um, be not just the black preferred candidate, but the most liberal uh, candidate. And the um, other voters in the Democratic Party could be assumed to be you know, more conservative than the, than the black electorate. Um, That's not true anymore. Um, So, you know, in the last election, uh, the white voters in the democratic uh, primary, um, you know, were not necessarily uh, more conservative than, than the black voters. Um, And, and um, we've had kind of the, the rise of uh, white liberals in uh, the democratic coalition, partly just because the white conservatives have left the Democratic coalition, but also because there's a rise of a real um, a Sanders wing. Um, and so how, I guess, how are Black voters thinking about themselves in the Democratic Party coalition, given um, that, you know, they they are moving from the clear left flank to uh, maybe an intermediary period to perhaps the, the right flank of the, the Democratic Party primary? I think that, for a lot of Black voters, there is an understanding of, or a perception, I should say, of what their understanding of the kind of rank and file white voter is going to do um, in the general, I think. And so I think that, and I, and to that end, I think that there isn't that that understanding leads particularly older black voters to in certain contexts be less inclined to go as far left as I think is possible for them to go. I think um I think that there are lots of there's a very clear understanding of you know, particularly, I mean, and it's, and and I don't want to use the 2020 election as the kind of metric for this, because that election is not generalizable. Um, But I do think that there is something about the way the, the collective nature with which we saw Black, many Black voters, particularly kind of older, middle-aged and older Black voters, kind of rally around Biden um, with the belief that it was going to be him who would be able to beat Trump. And I think that while, yes, there is this kind of growing 
population of like white liberals. And, and, and simultaneously, I think there is a very a stronger kind of growing population of younger black liberals, right? And so I think that some of this is obviously kind of defined by generation. What I, what I, what the work of Ishmael and, 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 and Cheryl tells us, particularly in terms of kind of democratic partisanship, is that even in the kind of space of ideological divide, even within the Black community, when push comes to shove, there, when the consensus is made, most Black people are going to follow what the kind of racial group is doing as a whole. And I think that that's what separates them in a lot of ways from what white liberals do in that, and I think we saw this a lot um, in the last Democratic primary, and we've seen it in others, where there's a coalescence around one person amongst Black voters, and then there's kind of a lot of variation amongst white Democrats. And so I think that while white liberals are kind of becoming... um, maybe moving further left in some cases, in some kind of context, I think what Black voters are in their assessment of kind of the political space that they find themselves in, I think Black voters always have an eye on the perception of who is going to be able to win the general election. Um, and, and, And in that, trying to optimize their own politics, their own political positionality. And I think, you know, Biden offered them both of those things. Here's a politician who was at least portrayed in a lot of ways to be able to beat Trump while simultaneously having a very strong connection to the Black community on a number of dimensions, particularly having served as vice president to the first Black president of the United States for eight years. And so I think that part of Black people's calculus is a recognition of kind of what's to come in the general election and what they can get out of a politician while also optimizing the position of not having a Republican become, you know, president, governor, senator, whatever. And so I think their eye is less on kind of the growing shifts within the white electorate. Um, Particularly, I think, as Black voters become more and more aware, and maybe not even Black voters, but particularly as politicians become more and more aware of the power and importance of Black voters, which then I think empowers Black voters to assert themselves, like we saw in 2020, um, where they changed the tide of the Democratic primary. Um, I think that that suggests that there's a very clear understanding that, you know, if we want to do something, like if you want to win, you need us. And we know that. And so, you know, white voters can be as liberal as they want to be. But at the end of the day, um, the disparate ideological nature of, of the white voting bloc can't compete with the strong, cohesive power of a black voting bloc. And I think black voters are extremely, extremely aware of that and, and, and employ that understanding very, very um, strategically. Um, And I think we will continue to see that because I think politicians are going to lean into this recognition as well. 
So as you say, uh, black voters were accurately um, and widely credited uh, with uh, Joe Biden's uh, primary win. Um, and that is going to impact how candidates uh, behave next time. Um, and also mechanically, uh, because uh, Biden has moved uh, South Carolina to be the first um, state, um, which not only has a predominantly black Democratic electorate, but a more older and, and more conservative one than some other states, um, black electorates. Um, so how, how, yeah, how are candidates going um, to respond to that positioning and kind of the lure of what happened this time? I think that we're going to see a lot more community commitment signals. Um, and I think we're going to see them a lot earlier in campaigns because they're going to need them. And I think what also is clear is that I think white voters are also going to be kind of paying much more attention to what happens in South Carolina and what is happening with Black voters, um, which isn't to say that they are going to be necessarily happy about the results, right? I think when Biden won South Carolina, I remember distinctly a lot of white liberals being very displeased um, with the results um, and asking a lot of questions about kind of what uh, why this choice was the one that was made. Um, and I think that we're going to see a lot of politicians, yeah, like really hyping up their connections to the Black community, um, really kind of amping up their um, their signals of commitment to the group, I think, because now it's necessary. Because now in order to gain that level of viability, you have to make it over the hurdle of black voters who I would argue have the highest hurdle of black Demo uh, of they have the highest hurdle of democratic voters because they not only want to know what you're going to do as Democrats, but they want to know what you're going to do for them. And they are extremely skeptical and much less inclined to believe and buy into pandering in the same way. And if the results of my work are any indication the bar of proof and the burden of, of evidence is very high. And so that means that, you know, a lot of lip service is not going to do the same amount of work as it may have done even 20 years ago. And now to have moved them to be at the front of the line will mean that politicians really have to be strategic about how they go about communicating and meeting the expectation of commitment that Black voters have. So black voters, uh, of course, uh, voted against uh, Trump in very large numbers in, in both elections. Um, but there was um, uh, some uh, lack of, of movement against uh, Trump that, that some expected in 2016. And then in 2020, certainly if you look uh, at compared to movement among the white electorate, uh, there was either less movement uh, towards Democrats among the black electorate, or even in some uh, cases, geographic um, and, and vote choice evidence that black voters might have slightly moved toward Trump. So um, why is it uh, that uh, black voters have not been repelled by uh, Trump, or at least the the, the Swing black voters um, uh, have not been as uh, repelled by Trump as some commentators expected and as white Democrats uh, expected. And is there any evidence that um, uh, this is part of a, a broader kind of slow, long term peeling off of the most conservative uh, black voters? 
So I think what's important about this is that um, this distinction is not, it's gendered, right? So a lot of this is driven by a lot of support for Trump in both 2016 and 2020 was driven by Black men. Um, I think if we look at a lot of the exit polls, we see that Black women are showing up in the high 90s percentile, right? And so they are um, much more likely to support um, Democratic politicians than um, Black men. Um, And in work that I am doing uh, with Cheryl Laird, um, we look at this specifically, um, not just in the in the Trump elections, but just over time. And what we see is that consistently, except for 2008, um, Black women are much more likely to support um, Democratic candidates than Black men, and that Black men are much more likely to be supportive, or some Black men are much more likely to be supportive of Republican candidates, and that a lot of this is driven by as... um, as she and Ishmael argue in Steadfast Democrats, driven by their social networks. Um, and we find that um, there's a higher number or higher percentage of Black men who have, whose social networks are not, you know, solely Black, and that those individuals are much more likely to kind of be um, influenced by that than their, than Black women. Um, and so for Trump, um, I think that what we see is a lot of this is driven by Black men. And I think what's important for us to recall about Trump is that he's not just some kind of random Republican person. Like he is a very public personality um, who has been known in the Black community for decades. I mean, there are, you know, raps, there are rap songs that are like about this man. Um, And so his place in the Black community is one that is very specific because he has played such a very specific role in terms of this kind of, um, you know, work hard, make money kind of narrative. Um, And that was going on through the 90s and the early aughts. He's also someone who, again, you know, during his time on The Apprentice, um, kind of sold a very similar kind of very economic-based narrative, which we know through gender and politics literature, is something that um, tends to be something that resonates more with men than women. And so I am hesitant to claim that what we've seen for him in terms of the peeling off of kind of Black voters towards Republicans is something that is a trend that will continue. I think we need to see it with someone who is not him. Um, Before... I would be willing to stake a claim that Black men are moving in ways that are drastically different than what we've seen historically. Um, Because I think, you know, even across elections before Trump, um, again, except for 2008, where Black men and Black women were pretty much um, tied in terms of their, the percentage of individuals who voted for Obama over McCain. But in 2012, we saw the divide come back and we saw Black women kind of be on, like, we saw Black women be more likely to vote for Obama than Black men. Um, And again, we're talking about a small percentage here. We're not talking about a massive number of Black men who are defecting. Um, And I think part of the 
reason why this resonates so much is because, you know, we tend to think about Black voters in such a kind of monolithic way that when we, it's rare that we see data that disaggregates by gender. And I think if we do that, we do see the prevalence of a gendered split that has been going on since the 70s. And so that this is not a new phenomena insofar that it is one that is often undiscussed because when we talk about the Black electorate, we talk about the Black electorate and not necessarily the gendered nuances that go on inside of those things. And so Cheryl and I um, have a paper that is currently under review that engages with this particular idea and are hoping at some point to kind of write a book manuscript that kind of focuses more on Black women, but also speaks to what we see in the behavior of Black men as it pertains to their um, relationship with the Republican Party historically, um, and also maybe be able to project out um, what it means for the future. So I'll make a little bit more of a, a case that it could be a trend and you can you can respond. So the... Um... So the you know at the point that our politics is is quite ideological um, on both sides now, um, and uh, black voters are still voting for Democrats in incredibly large uh, margins. Um, that sort of means that the marginal black voter, the swing black voter, is going to be more conservative uh, than the swing white voter um, uh, on a variety of issues as well as self identification. And might um, actually kind of take the 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 you know the the least likely democratic black voter uh, might kind of take the other um, uh, social uh, affiliations of the kinds of voters that have been moving towards Republicans. They might be richer but but less educated. They might be less directly infused in in the black community. Um, so is I guess to what extent is there kind of a long term opportunity for Republicans um, among swing black voters, uh, and is there anything that uh, the messages that you've been giving don't seem to be that very easy for uh, Republicans to do? But maybe there is a series of messages that would work with black. I think that if we consider how black voters arrive at their partisanship by way of this kind of social avenue. Um, and in reality that, you know, what we saw in Steadfast Democrats is that the people who are the most constrained by social kind of sanctions are people who hold those more conservative views. Um, and what we find um, both in Steadfast Democrats and in the, um, the article in the Journal of Politics that I did with uh, Cheryl Ishmael um, and Kareem McConaughey is that those individuals are if that what we find is that if being black is something that is important to you no regardless of your regardless of your ideological lean you are more likely to be susceptible to the sanctions and the pressure placed upon you by Black people around you. Simultaneously, though, I think it stands to reason that you are also more likely to be put off by the kind of very strong and undeniable racial, racially problematic language of the Republican Party. So that even if, so that while, yes, I think there are going to be kind of the Black swing voters who 
may ideologically align more with Republicans, I think the number, the percentage of those individuals who would ultimately go to the Republican Party would be even smaller because they would have to overcome the the socialized and racial kind of hurdle of what it would mean for them to make that choice. Um, and which isn't to say that that number isn't growing, although, I mean, by how much isn't clear. And I think it is difficult to know because... Because I think Trump is such an anomaly in a lot of ways that, at least for me, like I would want to see someone, I would want to see this effect with someone else, particularly a white male Republican. Because I think, you know, we can make their arguments to be made about Herschel Walker in Georgia and like what that meant. But I think, you know, there's work that tells us, you know, that. Well, and so I think there are, there are arguments to be made about that, but I do think that there is an additional hurdle to overcome that is more than just ideological um, for that kind of black swing voter, and I think that that hurdle is the one that is the most difficult to overcome intrinsically for those individuals for whom kind of being Black and being seen positively by other Black people is important. So one place this uh, ideological debate has been prominent is in criminal justice messaging, uh, where, of course, uh, Black Americans uh, have been disproportionately affected by uh, um, um, mass policing and mass incarceration, um, um, but are also disproportionately affected uh, by uh, violent crime. Uh, And... um, young black activists have been instrumental uh, in uh, kind of moving criminal justice reform along and even um, um, more, even more liberal positions um, on, on criminal justice and policing that uh, some others have said uh, has, tur- has turned off another subset of older, more conservative black voters. So you've talked about this um, generational divide and ideological divide among black voters. So um, kind of th- Tell us how you're thinking about that divide, especially when it comes to criminal justice messaging and how that kind of plays into um, what Black voters want to hear from politicians. I think that in this regard, younger Black voters and younger who, I think that younger Black voters are much less inclined to lean into the kind of more traditional, some would call it conservative, um, more like respectability politics, which is kind of a a more of a like potentially go along to get along or a more of a sense of, you know, working within the system to fix the system. Um, and I think that as time has gone on, there is a much more kind of clear understanding amongst the more liberal, the younger population that um, how can you work within a system that is inherently and fundamentally kind of flawed by design? Um, and so I think that part of the ideological debate is not, it, it is interestingly, right, not a new one, right? Like this debate about how to go about bringing about change has been one that has been, you know, happening within the echelons of the Black community 
for centuries um, about, you know, how does one bring about change? And it tends to be a very similar kind of generational divide, right? So if we think about even during the civil rights movement, um, you know, the Freedom Riders were young people. A lot of the kind of protests and things that were happening were happening on college campuses and being led by college students. And so this generational divide that we're seeing here, I think in this particular contemporary moment is really just another iteration of what we have seen within the Black community over generations. And so I think um, that what politicians are going to have to do is what politicians have, have done in the past in terms of kind of making a choice um, about who it is that you are going to want to appeal to. And I think what is if if history is any indication what is clear is that the younger generation of black activists will not let up and i think what else is different now than even in the like you know most recent generational iteration of this is that we live in an age where the flaws of the kind of policing structure are so apparent and made apparent to us on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, over and over and over again, that it's becoming harder and harder, I think, for politicians to avoid having to have these conversations. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Scannon Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. Racial Stereotypes in Voting for Obama and Trump, Will Trump Anger Motivate Black Turnout? Why Are Black Conservatives Still Democrats? How Presidential Debates Influence Voters? And A Century of Votes for Women. Thanks to Julian Womble for joining me. Please check out We Choose You and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.